Hello and welcome to what is the final re-release of 2023 and in first place by a country mile the most popular listened to and downloaded episode was from Angela Fraser Wicks. Angela represents everything that we want to do as a podcast. She represents a voice that is not heard or a voice that's much less heard, that's marginalised and she has she is an absolutely wonderful person to kind of come into this position of the most listened to. Angela's a birth mum, a mum, a, a chair of trustees of the Family Rights Group, uh, and she is a public speaker, a writer, a poet, uh, got her MBE this year, and is just an amazing person who speaks so eloquently and passionately from her own lived experience, as well as from her with the work that she does with birth families and families. So well done, Angela. Absolutely well deserved. More generally, this year has been a remarkable year for us as a podcast. We've seen, had so many amazing guests and we've had wonderful professionals come on and share their experience from that perspective. But more importantly, we've had families and people and individuals come on and share their personal experience. And we know that that comes with, that emotional labour comes with a cost and it, often it's very difficult for people to share and we try and make that as as... Uh, safe an environment for those who come and contribute. Uh, as we look forward, we've got more people coming on, sharing more experiences from a whole diverse range of perspectives, kinship carers, children, adults, all kinds of people. But thank you to you for listening, because that's without you listening, then we wouldn't be doing it. Well, maybe we would do it anyway. I don't know. That's a complicated one. I'll have to think about that. Um, but thank you to my co-contributor and my co-partner, my co-founder, kind of Scott, who without all of this, it just doesn't add up in my head. I, I don't want to do it if Scott's not involved. So thank you, Scott, for being involved and doing everything you've done. To all the other, all the other people who've been involved, um, Haley, Vicky, uh, Tris, Paula, all of those people. Um, and if I could ask one thing, that would be, would you be able to go away to wherever you got your download from and put a review on? And that would be a great thank you to us for all the work that we do. Again, you know, Scott often mentions it and I don't, but the reality is we don't do this for cash. We do this because actually we feel passionate that these that we should create a space where we can have these conversations. So the way you could pay us back is by just putting on a little bit of a review somewhere ever, putting on however many stars you feel is appropriate, put some words, and that would be much appreciated. I hope you have a wonderful 2024. I'd like to invite our final guest and um, so many accolades, but I think we'll stick with... Um, Chair of Trustees, which I think is a fantastic title of the Family Rights Group. Uh, we've got Angela Fraser-Wicks, who's been on the podcast a few times and um, uh, is sort of well known within the community um, for a whole host of reasons, but I'm not going to say much more than that because I'm sure you'll introduce yourself. So hello, Angela. Thank you for coming on and um, over to you. Thank you very much, Al. Yes, I do have many titles, not all of them I should probably share on here. I think my husband's probably got a few for me that um, we don't need to, to pass on. But yeah, I think the main one that's relevant for today is the fact that I'm a birth mum. Um, my eldest two children were removed and adopted back in 2004, um, predominantly because I was in an abusive relationship. But I had, you know, the whole gambit of problems that I think we hear about quite a lot, mental health issues, abuse, uh, drug abuse there was all sorts going on I'd not had a particularly 
good life up until that point. And when I'd asked for support services and intervention, unfortunately, none of that was forthcoming. And in the end, it, it resulted in the loss of my children. And shortly after I was told that the children were going to be adopted, I quite sadly tried to commit suicide because I very much believed that this would make things easier for my children. I thought that actually they wouldn't have to feel guilty about loving another mum or they wouldn't have to, you know, that that actually it would make things easier for them to explain as they were growing up, you know, I'm adopted because my mum died. And I thought, you know, that would sort of help with the shame or the stigma because I'm aware how sort of things that happen to us as children can follow us in life. And I very much wanted that not to be the case with my children. And it was, I was in intensive care and things weren't looking good. And there was a nurse who was sort of desperately trying to to get me to sort of open up and and to find out, you know, why I was in this situation, why I, I wanted to die, what, you know, why I didn't want to sort of fight to survive. And I just explained that I, I couldn't see a way forward without my children. And, um, she was the one who started to really make a difference because she sat there and she said, oh, you know, I understand completely. I have um, two children and I had a rich American husband and he went on holiday with the children and he never brought them back. I've not seen them since. I don't even know if they're still alive. And I was completely baffled by this professional woman who on the outside looked to be all together and, and, and sort, of, sort of said, well, how? How have you managed to keep going how you know what motivates you to keep fighting and then she she just put it so simply and she said because I have absolutely no doubt at some point in the future my sons are going to come looking for me I also know that the information they'll have been given about me and the circumstances around our separation won't be accurate and the chances are they've been told a lot of very negative if not untruthful things about me as their mum And when they come looking for me, I want them to find the opposite of what they've been told. I want them to find someone who's successful, who's in a caring profession, who's making a difference to people. And and she sort of said, you know, that's that's what role you can have in your son's lives. And that was the moment where I was sort of like, oh, actually, you know, I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. I'd very much just seen it as once they were gone, they were gone. And so she, you know, that was the point where I thought, actually, maybe I should start fighting to recover and fight to to spend some time with them. And I realized that actually it was probably better for them to know that I was still alive and still doing okay than it was for them to have to grieve needlessly for me. And that maybe I still had something to offer them in the future. Well, I'd never really sort of seen it from that perspective before. I'd only ever really seen it from a, a loss and an end point perspective. So I, um, despite lots of medical complications, I did actually manage to survive and pull through and, and get myself out of hospital. And then obviously I had the the hideous task of, of actually saying goodbye to my children. And I'm always quite grateful my 15-month-old was completely oblivious as to what was happening. I was just a nice lady he came to see three times a week. So for him, there wasn't a huge amount of trauma involved. But for my eldest son, who was five and a half, it was a very difficult experience. I was told I mustn't cry when I said goodbye, um, which I ignored because I felt that showing my son emotion was actually much better for him in the long run than it was to have this memory of someone who just 
turned up, smiled, waved and said goodbye. I didn't think that was good for his, his emotional well-being. And throughout that sort of last, well, what it was called back then was contact, there was constant references to letterbox and post-adoption contact and how we could write. And in the very beginning, when adoption had been explained to my son, no one had actually explained that side of it to him. They'd very much just said, you're going to say goodbye to your mum and you're never going to see her again, which had obviously confused him massively. And when we then started to talk about these letters, he, he became very emotional and was like, you know, so I will get to, and I was like, I will always be there. You know, and then you can write me letters. I won't ever forget about you. I'll be there. So maybe when you're a big boy, if, if you'd like to, you know, and when you're older, you could get in contact and, and, you know, we could have some kind of a relationship. But sadly for me, when we said goodbye at the end of that session, there was no follow-up. There was no named person for me to contact to find out how I was to write these letters. So the very last thing I said to my son when we said goodbye was that I would write really soon. And then I spent a considerable length of time trying to contact the local authority before I was eventually told that because there were no adopters at the time we said goodbye, there was no agreement for letterbox. So, And I was absolutely distraught because I was saying, but my little boy's waiting for a letter. Can somebody tell him that, you know, that there's a reason why I can't write this letter? But of course, obviously, I was no longer legally his mom. I was no longer entitled. And I kept saying, this isn't about me and my entitlement this is about my son and him understanding that you know I haven't just forgotten I haven't just given up you know I thought that was ex extremely important and no one would really listen and I was very very fortunate that I was referred to the organization after adoption which obviously isn't around in its original form anymore and that was when I started to get sort of real support around trying to reconnect this relationship to, to keep it going. And, and my um, support worker, Norma, who was an absolute godsend, said that she would she would fight her hardest to try and get Letterbox started and get it set up. And 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 to be and she did. She got it, she got the letters and you know they were they were wonderful. My son was happy, he was healthy, but we were able to have that connection because he was very concerned about me and what would happen to me because he'd seen me almost be murdered by my partner he'd seen me almost die in hospital so he'd, you know he's he told me when we were when we were leaving you know are you going to be okay he was very worried and I thought that my letters the purpose in the beginning were to reassure him to tell him you know mum's all right you know you know she's she still misses you she still loves you but you know you don't need to worry because I didn't want him carrying that as a small boy and then I mean we had a fantastic um, letterbox coordinator, a lady called Lindsay, who was at the end of a phone if I had any questions, because it's very difficult to suddenly have gone from being in a relationship with your child where you can just talk to them to suddenly working out, I've got to write a letter. How do you write a letter to a child that you're not seeing day to day, that you don't know as well as you once did? And, and she was extremely supportive. She was supportive when um, the adopters decided to emigrate. My son was having quite a lot of issues. He'd hit sort of early teens, hormones, emotions were all coming into play and he was really, really struggling with writing the letters. And because him and me and his other mum had, had sort of had this dialogue through Letterbox, we were able to sort of write to one another and, and try and agree on the best way to support him so she was very much I'll keep trying to get the letters written and I sort of wrote back and said actually I don't you know this this has to be about him it has to be about what he needs when he needs it you know I've made this promise 
I've kept my promise. But, you know, if if what it takes for him to have a future that's unmarred by anything that happened in the past, and if what that takes is for him to let go of me, then I gave him my blessing because I felt that that was taking that pressure and taking that stress off his shoulders and putting it onto mine. And and obviously I I always hoped that he would change his mind, that he would, you know, come through this difficult time. And, and, you know, I sort of said, I will always be here. And then I didn't really hear anything for, for quite a long time. But then my post box coordinator left. And I think that was the moment when I realised that the support that I'd had up until that point was not the norm, shall we say. <laughs> because when she went, suddenly what I got was the norm, which was no named person, no one that I could contact birthday cards and Christmas cards going missing, wrong names on letters that were sent to me. And, you know, just this sort of absolute chaos that, and not being able to get the people in the letterbox department to understand how difficult it was as a birth mum and to be grieving that separation and that loss, but then also how difficult it was for my son and that actually we needed someone who was going to help us strengthen that relationship, not someone who was just going to see it as a tick box exercise or you've sent your letter, he sent his letter, job done. Because my coordinator previously, her goal had always been reunification. She'd always said, right, there's absolutely no reason why this shouldn't happen. You know, she'd seen me make so many changes in my life. She'd seen the way that, you know, I have I had a daughter, no local authority involvement. I work in family justice. So she was always like, there's no reason why in the future, if it's what he wants, that we can't reconnect you both and then obviously this just so we had this big chasm left where there was no letters there was no one to speak to um my son turned 18 so I sent along with his card a letter to his mum just basically saying I am aware that he's turned 18 and that things change but actually his needs today are exactly the same as his needs were yesterday it's just a number on on a birth certificate if he's still not ready then I respect that. I didn't want them to sort of worry about me just randomly trying to make a connection with him when he wasn't ready. And I, I wanted to reassure them. And then sort of time just ticked along and my little girl would be asking, you know, why can't I write to my brothers? Why don't my brothers write to me? Why can't I see them? And I would just sort of explain that this is the way the system works. These decisions are made by people who don't know us. Who've, who've never met us, who don't understand us, but that um, I'm working as hard as I can to try and change that, to try and raise awareness of, of these problems and, and, and so that hopefully other little girls don't spend their whole life asking where their brother is. And then obviously I had my work with the family rights group and, and, and every other thing that I get involved in because I have an inability to say no to any opportunity. And that was sort of keeping me going. and and. I just had sort of got to the point where I'd almost just accepted that that he was gone. That and but in my in my heart I was just well if he's happy that's all that mattered. And it was if he's happy without contact then I'm I'm fine. I can I can live with that. Obviously it it's a very difficult thing to carry. But as you know you all know watching your children are everything, and you do what is right for them, not what is right for you. And that doesn't matter whether your child has been adopted, you still do the same thing. You, you know, you still care the same way, you still love the same way. It's just a different set of circumstances. And then 
on the 16th of December 2020, I was, this is very much all the time, on my way to a socially distant Santa visit with my daughter, which basically involves, in case anyone's wondering, elves running alongside a Santa in a car with big long sticks with buckets of sweets on the end. And so there was a, just an email that said that my son wanted to contact me. And I just absolutely collapsed and was sobbing and was my daughter was sobbing. And, you know, all I could really say was, it's your brother. I had no idea what this connection was going to look like, what this relationship was going to be like. All I knew was he, I hadn't lost him. He, you know, in some way he still wanted to be there. Um, so it was then that moment of, oh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the parent, I'm the grown-up. I need to be the one to make that first move. So, you know, I, I'd sort of written and said, um, you know, you can, hello, sweetheart, you can call me whatever you want to. We can take this at your pace. Because I had no idea, you know, what he was hoping for or what he was expecting. I was just delighted that we were suddenly going to have a conversation again. And um, within minutes, there was a response that basically just said, hi, mum. This has been a long time coming and life as I knew it, life as my family knew it, just changed forever. That was it. He was he was back in our lives. And we sort of tentatively shared emails for a couple of days until he, um, who was very much in control of everything, I was just sort of this stunned didn't really know what was going on. I looked a mess. I cried constantly. I then began to panic that what if he saw the work that I was doing and didn't approve or what if he, you know, what if he saw that I'd been telling our story and he, he wasn't happy about that. So I sort of spent about 48 hours completely losing the plot. And um, he asked if we could FaceTime. Well, actually he asked if we could speak on, on the phone and I then said, do it online. And I hadn't actually figured that out in my sort of frazzled head that it was going to be on face to face so I'm guessing that the moment he had in his mind of when we reconnected it's probably not what he got because what he got was a woman who hadn't slept for two days or hadn't washed for two days who literally was in like the scruffiest of clothes and it was just like sort of a goldfish sat with her mouth open and as anybody who knows me will know for me to be lost for words is pretty rare but it was just me sort of gaping at the phone and um there he was he was back in my life and by some bizarre way exactly the same child as I'd always known which obviously you know that you see your child as a baby they're, they're grown but you know he was 22 years old with an Australian accent drinking rum and covered in tattoos yet still the five-year-old boy that I'd said goodbye to and just sort of we sort of had a little bit of a conversation and then he dropped the bombshell which was that he'd been trying to reconnect since he turned 18 but that the local authority had refused to give him my contact details. They had said because his younger brother, who he was adopted with, was not yet 18, I was a safeguarding risk. Now, this is despite the fact that there was all the evidence on file, the letterbox file, that I was in a completely different place. My ex-partner, who was the risk, had passed away a few years earlier. I had a daughter with no local authority involvement. I worked in family justice. You know, there was there was a huge amount of evidence to say that I really wasn't a risk anymore. And, you know, there was all of that, the sort of the copies of the letters of me saying, I'll be here when you're ready. And so I just really couldn't get my head around 
why this this had happened. It didn't make any sense to me. So I sort of tried to put that on the back burner and just focus on the fact that he was back and that um, you know we were suddenly going to have some kind of a relationship again. And they um, live in Australia, so it was always going to be a, a strange relationship. But thankfully, because we'd gone through COVID and lockdown, speaking to people on a screen somehow felt a little easier. So you know it it, it worked quite well. And then I think the following day is probably the day I'll remember most for the rest of my life really which my daughter finally got an answer to the question she'd asked forever and ever and ever and she got to meet her her big brother and um they've been we've been trying to find ways to rebuild that relationship which is it's difficult there's a lot of unanswered questions that neither of us I think are quite ready to address we have we 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 touch on the past but we don't go there properly we have sort of conversations about that. We've been trying to find a way for my 11-year-old daughter to actually engage in a proper discussion with her brother, which as anyone who's got kids will know, trying to get them to do anything on Zoom is an absolute pain in the backside. And we've, what we've discovered is FIFA is the way. And that's, so that's post-adoption contact in 2022 in our house looks like my daughter sat on her bed with headphones, chattering away to her brother while she's thrashing him and she's Arsenal and he's Spurs. But that it, it always sort of makes me think if if they were still being made to write letters, if it was still letterbox, how that relationship wouldn't be growing. It wouldn't be the relationship it is because they've actually been allowed to sort of just find their own way of having these conversations and of building that relationship. But then we've hit, I mean, it's absolutely wonderful having him back in my life. And I actually found out that, because I was sort of when he said, oh, they wouldn't reconnect us. And I was sort of sat there and I did the maths. And I was like, but your younger brother isn't 18 yet. So how is how have you done this? How has this happened? What made them change their minds? And um, he told me that it was his mum. His mum had seen him try. She'd seen him fail. She'd seen him hurting. And she'd helped him find me. And I genuinely don't think I have the words to explain how you can love someone that much that you've never met, but the selflessness and the maternal love that that involved to help him find me when she'd spent probably the first three or four years of his life believing she was protecting him from me because that was the information she had from the local authority was just, it meant so much to me to know that she loved my son that much that she did what was right for him, irrespective of how that felt for her and what that must have done for her. And he then told me that I needn't have worried about what he thought about all the work that I'd done because he'd um, he'd Googled me and he'd been on Family Rights Group page and he'd seen everything I'd done. And then he told me that he was very proud of how I'd told our story and how I've tried to help other people. And I just, I can't even begin to explain how life-changing that was. That sudden, you know, I'd always been pretty certain I was doing the right thing and pretty certain that, you know, I should be fighting for change, but always that hesitation at the back of my mind of thinking, you know, what would the boys think? And um, so to suddenly just have it confirmed that actually it was okay, I can do this, I have his blessing. And, um, you know, so we've sort of, We've got a bizarre relationship now because obviously you go from having a relationship with a five-year-old to a relationship with a grown man. And it wasn't until his the first birthday after we'd reconnected and I went into a card shop to 
get him a birthday card. And for anybody who's ever had to send birthday or Christmas cards to their child who's been adopted, they will know that you can't just walk into a shop and pick up a card that you like and send it. You have to think. You have to make sure it's it's the right tone. You can't just go in and buy a huge card. You have to be very mindful of it because if you don't, there's a chance you're going to get it sent back or it's going to not be sent on. And, and quite often, if it's not sent on, no one tells you it hasn't been sent on. So you sort of got this mindset. And then you're quite often thinking, right, okay, there's only so many plain birthday cards. Have I sent that one before? Then you start to sort of do all of this in your head. And it wasn't until that moment where I stood in the card shop looked at the sort of rack of cards in front of me and it really hit me that I could send whichever card I wanted. There was nobody checking it. There was nobody reading it. There was nobody telling me what I couldn't, couldn't put in it. And I became completely overwhelmed and just burst into tears and had to leave the shop. But it was just, it was too much. And it was that sort of realisation of he is actually back. We haven't got anybody telling us what to do. And as it happened, I ended up sending him a funny card because it just, it seemed easier. It was just that sort of, well, actually, it's too much for me to then just send this lovey-dovey card. It felt too much. So, yes, it was um, a, a, a rather rude joke on it about guinea pigs because my little girl's obsessed, but he, he loved it. But then more recently, um, things have become a little bit more complicated in the sense that my son is getting married, which is wonderful I'm absolutely overjoyed for him he's very happy he's found his life partner and you know as a a mom that just fills you with joy and the day he told me he was getting married he asked me if I would go to the wedding and obviously the wedding is in Australia and my first response was I would absolutely love to come to the wedding but what about your brother and what about your parents I was very sort of aware that this was going to be a big deal for them. And, and in the beginning, he said, you know, yeah, you know, you know, my brother's cool. I've checked with him. My parents are cool. And um, he actually said, they know that you mean as much to me as they do, which was then me off in tears again later on. And I try and be cool when he's on the screen. And I try not to count the amount of times he says the word mum. But afterwards, my husband just sort of looks at me and I'll say, how many? And he knows because these are sort of, my, there's a little Homer Simpson sort of style figure running around in my brain going, oh, Every time he says these things. So then it became, a, okay, maybe we're going to Australia. Maybe we're going to a wedding. And everybody else around us was getting very excited and making plans. And I just had a feeling. I just knew that this is a lot more complex than I think they're realising. And I sort of, so I held back. And then I got a message that was just, mum, can we chat about the wedding? And that was the moment where I knew and my youngest son, who I've had no contact with since he left, he's, he was 15 months old. He doesn't know me. He fortunately also doesn't know any of the bad stuff that we went through. So I'm blessed in the fact that he's had a very happy life. You know, his his parents are his parents. His life is his life. And then suddenly here I was rocking, going to be rocking up at his brother's wedding that he was going to be best man for. And he, he he'd admitted that. He, he wasn't ready. He didn't know how he was going to cope. And he was really scared of ruining his brother's day. And so I was able to just say, then we won't come. We'll, we'll stay home. You know, it's, there is no way I would force your brother to meet his biological mother 
against his wishes on his brother's wedding day. You know, being best man and giving a speech is stressful enough without having that there as well. And, and I said to him, you know, I've not been able to do anything to help you for almost 18 years. This I can do. I can step back. I can, you know, say, okay, I'm going to let in. So they're going to live stream it. We can watch. I can still wear a hat. I can do the ugly cry, but no one will see me. And I, and I also had to have that really uncomfortable conversation with him, which was being honest with, I wasn't sure how I would feel about seeing his brother either. We've not had any contact or any connection for such a long time. And I was going to be managing my emotions, my daughter's emotions, my two sons' emotions, his parents' emotions. And it was very much just a case of me saying, actually, maybe this isn't the right time. <laughs> maybe we can just take this a little bit slower and, and allow your brother to, to get there in his own time. It's, it's his journey. It's not up for me to make that decision for him or his brother to make that decision for him. It has to be his own decision. And I've said, if nothing else, I'd like to think that at some point he'd want a relationship with his sister. And I've said that if that is the case, that I would be happy for my other son to facilitate that and for me to just step back and, and just allow them to build that bond, allow them to have that connection, because it just seems so sad and so unfair that there are three children who were all completely innocent in the whole scheme of things who've not been supported to actually have a relationship with one another. And I can't help but think that if my original postbox coordinator hadn't retired, how different that relationship would have been because it would have, there would have been somewhere there, someone there to support that. We wouldn't have been left on our own trying to, to figure it out over Zoom calls and, and, you know, without that sort of advice and support. And, you know, I'm blessed. I'm very fortunate to work in the sector. So I have an enormous amount of people that I can turn to and ask for help and advice, but it's, it's a bit too late. You know, it would have been nice to have had this from the minute my daughter was born, some support to, to manage her expectations and not just me having to say, because the system doesn't allow it. And, you know, that's I'm so passionate about really trying to help change that going forwards and really helping people to understand the the need for that sibling bond and the need for that relationship. And, and, you know, the fact that quite often the system puts the needs of one child before the needs of others. And it's not necessarily working. It doesn't always help. And there's this sort of, it was very frustrating for me that there were, the focus was still very much on risk, even after such a huge amount of time. And when I contacted the local authority and said, but I don't understand you have all of this information about me. You know I'm not a safeguarding risk. You know that I've offered to do free training on multiple occasions to try and help you be better at doing this. How on earth was the decision made not to even let me know that my son was trying to contact me? And her God's honest, true answer was letterbox and reunification are two different departments. And, and I was like, we're not a department. We're a family. We're human beings. We're people with needs and emotions. And you have pigeonholed us 
So all of that information that my postbox coordinator had meticulously collected, she'd she had newspaper articles, radio interviews. She had everything in this file because she was like, I want your children to see this. Mm. Yet as soon as she went, that stopped. And it was that sort of, so I'm still, I mean, I'm still offering them free training. They're still not taking me up on the offer, but it's <laughs> it's just really trying to get people to understand that keeping relationships after adoption doesn't have to be as much of a struggle as the system makes it and the, you know the relationship I had with my son's other mom allowing us to support him to be reconnected and you know my son my son says it right you know we're the lucky ones we found our way out the other side of this we have reconnected mm-hmm. we are sort of finding our way through this but you know I can't help but often sit and think what if what if he hadn't have persevered what if his mum hadn't have stepped in you know there's that when an adopted child makes that decision to want to find out about their birth family what they need is support and kindness and compassion and education and, and you know and help to be able to do it safely not just a response that says no because, you know, that, that that wasn't best for him. They made a decision thinking they were doing what was best for his younger brother, but they had absolutely no sort of consideration for what was right for him. So I think I'm just constantly trying to get people to understand that, you know, family in 2022 doesn't look anything like family used to. And that actually it is possible for everybody who loves a child to connect and to work together and to give that child everything, even if it is just a birthday card or a Christmas card. You know, we're talking about lifelong links and, you know, the programme that we have at at Family Rights Group for Children in Care. And we're now really, really pushing for that to be available in adoption as well, so that there is actually someone there who's understanding that family, that family dynamic and how that changes and how that changes over time and revisiting things and saying well actually what was right for you in 2006 isn't what's right for you in 2022 and if that means you know setting up a FIFA game it just really just starting to actually understand the needs of an entire family but then that real focus on that sibling bond though you know it's just to see my and my daughter is the absolute double of her brother and always has been. And to see them just sort of have this, this crazy fun relationship, it, it's just, it's, it's more than I'd ever imagined and more than I'd ever hoped for. And I just feel very sad for the families who probably won't get that opportunity because they won't have someone who's so supportive helping the son or, or, some, or, or not be in the position that I was in where I was able to keep going despite the fact that I, I thought I'd lost him. So it's just, I think there's a lot in that story, Al. <laughs> I'm not really sure if I've uh, got where you needed me to go, but <laughs> this no. is the risk when I work off script. No, no. And I, I keep moving because the sun's moving around. Yeah. And sort of... <laughs> um, there's so many things, and I think that I could sort of just sit and listen because I think there's so much in that that it's just, you're able to sort of weave the narrative with the bigger picture, which is just fascinating. There was a few things, um, there was a few questions or comments. One was in relation to what is sort of unquestionably the, the injustices in your story, you know, right to the, from the beginning, right the way through. 
have you made a complaint? I mean, have you felt able to make a complaint or have you raised that? Have you sort of seen any comeback for that? I made the decision very early on. In fact, actually, my son, as soon as he told me the situation said, you're going to try and change that for the people, aren't you? And I said, yes, probably. But I actually made the decision that, yes, I want an explanation. I'd like to understand why that decision was made. But that I need to do that when I'm in the right frame of mind. I don't want it. I don't want it to come from a place of anger. I'd like to come at it a, a place from trying to understand and then also to educate them, to help them to see, actually, this was the result of your actions. This is what happened. Please, when you're dealing with this situation in the future, this is this would be a much more sensible approach. And I'm not sure I'm there quite yet. And I do keep saying that it is on it is on my sort of bucket list of things to do. I would like to have a conversation and just hopefully stop their practice from continuing. But no, it needs to come from a place of of education and change, not just because I, I want an apology, because an apology is not going to give me back the four and a half years that we missed. Mm. Um, no, that makes perfect sense. And, you know, that sort of pragmatic realism and sort of wisdom is, is amazing. Um, do you, I mean, I've got lots of questions, I'm sure Scott as well. I, I was writing as you went. Um, one thing I'm really conscious of, and I don't mean this, it's, it's a hard to articulate, but you're exceptional, you know, in, 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 in hugely positive ways, you are an exceptional person and your story is exceptional. I can't help but reflect that you are not necessarily, how representative are you of birth families? That That's, you know, that's a really complicated conversation. So what are no, your thoughts I, and reflections? I, no, I get what you're saying 100%. And it's one of the reasons that I've sort of really enjoyed having the panels that we have at Family Rights Group and working with other birth parents because I've quite often come across a lot of people who say, oh, well, you know, like you say, you know, oh, well, you're different. That's, you know, it's a different situation. It's a different set of situations, different circumstances. But what I keep trying to get people to see is, you know, if hearing my story and people are often are like, oh, my goodness, how did you survive that? And it's like, because I was very, very lucky. The right people came into my life at the right time. But there are, but I'm also exceptionally fortunate in the fact that I'm a birth mum and I can speak publicly about what happened to me. There are a huge number of birth parents who can't and won't. The majority of them are either too ashamed because they've been made to feel ashamed. They're terrified that if they say something publicly, it may impact contact. So I've always sort of been of the opinion that my voice is fine, but I want I want all of their voices out there. I want them to be heard. So, you know, the last two national adoption weeks, finally hearing from birth parents. So it's, I've always said, you know, it's great that I get invited to go and tell my story, but it's a very long time ago. It's about hearing from people who are actually going through this now, because I think the more of us that are heard, the more that people start to realise that actually this is a systemic issue. This is a practice issue. This isn't just, a, oh, you were unlucky, you had a bad local authority, or you were unlucky that you didn't have a good practitioner and really help. But no, I, I, I really do get that and I re that's why I'm just so determined to try and get 
the voices of other the, the one that I did, you know, in the most recent National Adoption Week with PAC UK, we were all birth parents. And all of us, in fact, I think everybody there, with the exception of maybe one or two, had more children. You know, we were all saying the same thing. We were all saying, you know, we were failed. We weren't seen properly. We weren't assessed properly. Contact was a nightmare. There was no support. Because I think that's, like you say, I think a lot of people find it a lot easier to just sort of almost dismiss when they hear me say something because they think, oh, well, you know, like you say, you're not representative. And it's like, I'm not now, but I very much was when I started the journey. And it's about, you know, it also helps people to understand that if I can go through what I went through and still manage to turn my life around to be the parent and the person I am now, that tends to be my argument for why we should be supporting more birth parents. Because, you know, if we supported every birth parent from the get-go, then we could be, maybe there wouldn't just be me. Maybe there'd be more, maybe there'd more people out there who would be able to actually, you know, have these relationships with their children and, 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 and not just, it's not move on, it's move forward. You know, you take those steps with your child beside you, just a bit further away than you would like. And I think that's, that would be the way I would think of that question. Yeah. I, when I was a student social worker, I, I had to do a placement with a, an organisation that supports families with children in the care system. And I, it, for me, it was transformative because it altered my perception of the defining feature of, of those families as being one of riskiness, that's a thing, um, to vulnerability. And that, vulner that vulnerability often provoked the riskiness. And so it, I think, but that, the, the nuance around that is just not available or not made not made clear mm. to to many adoptive parents. Scott, do you have any questions? Because I I could just I could just imagine we'll no just one's here. Chat. <laughs> I literally I could just imagine I'm no one's here and just get at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's just three of us really chatting, isn't it? it Apart is from really. the Q and A in the chat box. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been listening, and and I have to say, Angela, this is the first time I've listened. I've, spoke to you loads on social media over the years but this is the first time I've actually listened to you because I've never been to the places that you've been to uh, and and it's it's reflective in the chat box really I mean I when when you first mentioned there about your um, son's other mum I mean yes you could get all hung up on that and go oh look isn't that fab but actually do you know I, I think for me that's just the way it should be anyway and I think if we were if we we're looking at this from the beginning you know I'm 16 years in or whatever if if that was the approach from the beginning things could look very differently for everybody for, you know for everybody involved in in this kind of family that we have because i look at the the the, the birth family as, as an extension of our own family never met them never spoken to them but that's who they are because they're connected to my children so that's the that was that was really quite a a, a big thing um but um some of the comments really about accountability in the system as well you know systems come up a lot in discussions like this and we're never going to you know we didn't set out today to solve the problem because that's we're, we're not going to do that let's face <laughs> it um but it's just to raise awareness and you know you must just sit there sometimes and just shake your head as if to say oh for crying out loud you know yeah i do sometimes i think it's i'm always saddened when i hear a story that's reflects my own experiences because you I would love to be able to say oh you know my story was it 18 years ago but you know it's only four and a half years ago that 
my son wasn't supported with contact. And and I'm hearing birth families talking about, you know, how it's not working and, and, and how birth parents and adopters are pitted against one another right from the get-go when really that's not what either of them want. And, you know, and I've always understood, like I say, my my son's other mum genuinely believed she was protecting him. So I never harboured any old will to that. You know, I was always like, she didn't know that he didn't need protecting from me. She was just acting on what she'd been told and the information that she'd been given. And in the very beginning, I was promised that we could meet and, and it never, ever happened. And it was just that sort of, and I can't help but think how, damaging and difficult that is for the child because it was very much just a case of my son being told right okay those people were your family that those people were the people that you loved things are different now this is your new family this is the new people that you should love and it's but how on earth that cannot be changing for a five-year-old boy it was you know there was no sort of transition there was no sort of getting used to anything and that sort of and then to not have support with letterbox for him to just then be sort of left feeling bereft that I'd forgotten him and it being left up, left up to this wonderful couple who loved these two children, but didn't know them, didn't know their past because the information they had was inaccurate at best, just seemed wrong. You know, these are children's lives we're talking about and children's futures and we're, we're quite often seeing this as oh well we're saving the children we've taken them from this risk and we put them where there is no risk and it's like but there's risk everywhere there's risk in life there's and it's sort of you know I'm just I mean I'm happy that the conversation conversation around adoption seems to be shifting quite rapidly in the last few years you know to this sort of well actually if mum isn't a risk to the child why are we not allowing direct contact why are we not allowing a phone call why are we sticking to this system of making children write letters and as anyone who knows unless that letter is going to santa it's an absolute nightmare getting a child to write a letter and it's not and how many of us write letters to anyone anymore we just don't do it and it's that sort of yet we're expecting young people who've been through trauma to fit into a system that's not designed for them could I ask you to do a bit of magical thinking then? Um, if, right, you know, if you're God for a day, what? <laughs> just imagine. Um, what would what's what would a service look like that is able to to kind of do this? Is it an independent service? Is it a national service? Is it a? Because it, it feels like laying it in the hands of adoptive parents is maybe asking too much because they don't hold all of the. They don't hold all the pieces no, of the jigsaw. No, they don't at all. I think we need to have local services, but I think we need national top-down direction. And I think it needs to be, we need to be coming from a case of, is there someone in this child's life who loves them and who can offer them that love and that support in their life? And if the answer to that is yes, then we allow that to happen and we make that happen and we find a way to make that happen. I, I remember when... I didn't find out until nine years after saying goodbye to my boys. I'd always harbored this image that the only people that my sons lost were me and my partner because we were the ones who were party to proceedings. We were the ones who had decided to risk. But there were lots of other people in my son's lives, his foster carers, his friends, you know, extended family. And I found out nine years later that they'd all gone. 
And that was the bit that I couldn't get my head around. I couldn't understand that. Is There was some logic attached to the fact that I was seen as a risk, so therefore I had to be kept at arm's length. But you couldn't understand why people who had loved him and supported him and who could continue to do that weren't in his life. And I very quickly realised is it was because it was easier for the system. It was easier for the people in the system than it was for for me, for my children, for his foster family, for his adopters. It was very much just a case of, well, we're going to do it this way because it's very cut and dried and it's easy. And it's like, but every child is an individual. There needs to be decisions made for that child. And I really would like to see national policy that says, unless you can prove this person is a risk to that child, that person stays in this child's life in whichever way is possible to facilitate, whether that's a birthday card or a Christmas card. You know, no child has ever suffered by being told someone loves them and misses them. But they have suffered by thinking the person they loved doesn't love them and doesn't miss them. I'm going to blow Scott's trumpet. We had a, we were discussing this in a podcast and he made this really just succinct point is that we so often we assess the risk of contact, but we rarely assess, assess the risk of no contact. And that sort of, that needs to be just brought into the picture. So well done, Scott. You should get a t-shirt. I, know, I know, I should. That's I'm it. Really the only point there, Scott, is it's he very, right? It's very rare that it happens on both counts, actually, that he compliments me and that I come out with these little things. <laughs> and you've got it on recording now. So even better, Scott, you've got it through. <laughs> well, it's true, isn't it? It is true. You know, we risk assess the risk. What we see is risk because that is, you know, in our heads, there's this going on or that going on, but we don't actually think about the other side of it. Um, you know, and the one thing, you know, that I keep coming back to in my head is that, um, you know, the boys were assessed based on how they reacted to direct contact in foster care. And there was no opportunity for us to see how that looked for them yeah. in, a, you know, once it settled in and blah, 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 blah. That was never an option. So that, because that was seen as, well, that's happened and that was the risk and that's how they reacted. And, you know, da, da, da. so it's, I mean, like I say, it's so, you know, we're never going to solve it, but it's so complex, so complex. But the connection needs to be there to be able to try, at least. Yes, exactly. And I think that, I mean, I, I'm sort of filled with hope over the last couple of years, just because, I mean, with Sarah's leadership and there's just, there's real conversation now about and real recognition of the fact that we're not getting it right. Mm. And that doing the same thing and expecting different results isn't going to work. And, you know, the fact that we are, you know, part of that conversation, you know, as Al pointed out, for such a long time, there was just me, the talking birth mum, banging the drum saying, you know, please see us, please hear us, please accept that, you know, we may have made mistakes, we may have made bad life choices, quite often because we were given very bad options to choose from, but that actually we're all capable of change and that, you know, if we want to be able to to facilitate that change, we have to give people hope. You know, as a birth parent, there's none. You just sort of, you live for this letter and quite often the letter is just, your kid's fine. Your kid goes to school, you know, or there's no, even less than that. And then you're just sort of left afterwards thinking, well, 
what do I say? You know, my motivation for turning things around was those letters, was the fact that I wanted to be able to say to my sons, I'm doing something, not just I've sat in the house. So, you know, that was my early motivation. But then when my circumstances really had started to drastically change, it would have been nice if the contact could have then started to look at being changed. And, and who knows how how different things could have been. But hopefully, you know, we've got strong leadership. We've got enough of us out there really starting to wave the flag and just say, come on, let's start actually pulling everybody together around this child rather than just having the child in the centre with all these different shoots off in all different directions and expecting that child to grow up into, you know, a well-adjusted young adult. When, you know, we can't make sense of it as grown-ups, what on earth must it feel like to be that child right in the middle of it with, you know, conflicting emotions? I always used to say that we bumped into my son's foster care uh, one day when we were out after he'd been returned home. And I saw that look of joy on his face when he spotted them. And then I saw that moment of confusion and hesitation because he was with me. And I saw that moment of what he wanted to do was go and run to them. But in that moment at four, he was aware that, oh, other people's emotions are at play. And obviously I looked at him and went, well, go on, <laughs> off you go and go and yeah. run. But that really sums it up. It's that expecting a child to manage everybody else's emotions and expectations when we should be the one sort of well, just uniting and, and, and getting rid of, you know, any preconceived ideas that we have about our roles in that that child's life and just actually just being there to, to love them and, and to show them that, you know, we as adults, we can all deal with this. We're all here for you and we all love you. And then hopefully that child and young person will stand a, a bit of a better chance of having something resembling a normal life. Mm. What a place to finish. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I've been trying to read the chat, but I'm on my little tablet, so I haven't managed. Oh, that's to right. We'll, we'll leave it open for a couple of minutes once we've finished, anyway. So you're fine. Oh, brilliant! Um, Thank you. Don't listen. want to ignore anybody. No, I know. Yeah, that's, I'm always like this, and then I'm like, oh, did I miss something there? Um, Angela, thank you so much. I mean, you know, first time I've heard you. Absolutely, can't wait to meet you in real life, maybe at some point, and um, and have a much longer chat. Um, but thank you so much for um, agreeing to do this today. Really appreciate it, as do people in the the chat box apparently so um un unsurprising really let's be honest um so thank you and um yeah uh